I'm a healthcare provider. I come from this world. I know how things work. And maybe because I know how things work, I'm especially angry because I know how much more efficient things can be. And at the same time, it just scares me to think like there's so many parents that are not as medically literate as I am and that don't know how to advocate for their child as well as I am blessed to be able to. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. I, of course, as per tradition, I'm going to start by please asking you to rate and review the podcast wherever you can. I actually just realized, like, so typical me, that if you listen on the website, on the actual uh, link on your browser, then you can actually comment on episodes, which I love because one of the things that I don't like about doing a podcast versus like Instagram, social media is that I can't really get good specific feedback and like conversation around the topics of my episode. So this is great. It's awesome. And more importantly than all of this is that, guys, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude that the Happy Birthway podcast has now had over 20,000 downloads. I'm just like overwhelmed with that. And I'm so grateful for all of you who listen to these episodes and who share the podcast because that's how you've helped me grow. So thank you. And the cooler thing is, is that I, I don't know, when I started this podcast, I guess I didn't really think about which countries would listen to it. I know I have followers from outside the United States, like Israel, Canada, the UK. But this is really interesting. The podcast platform, the podcasting platform that I use to release my podcast breaks down by country downloads. And there are people in India, Germany, Australia, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Um, Portugal, Switzerland, France, New Zealand, Mexico, Iran, Ireland, Turkey, Austria, the Russian Federation that are listening to this. Um, And, you know, three or four downloads from Singapore, Guatemala, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines, South Africa, Norway, Luxembourg, Ecuador, Morocco, Colombia. I mean, there's more countries. I'm not going to bore you with that. But I think that that's absolutely incredible and cool. And I just never thought that I'd reach people in all of these countries. So thanks for listening to it. I hope you understand my English. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to maybe read a review or two that I've gotten. 
I got a beautiful review from Millie Marcus, who is actually a pelvic physical therapist uh, located in Brooklyn. And she has an Instagram account, Millie DPT, M-I-L-L-I-E DPT. So you can go follow her there if you're looking into pelvic PT. And she is so kind and nice. She left me like a beautiful, beautiful review. So I want to read it. I think maybe I'll read like one review a week. Um, Khani is such a compassionate host, listening to each guest's story with respect combined with the clinical eye. That's absolutely what I love to do. I love to combine the emotional aspect of birth together with obviously what's going on medically. I'm learning so much from each episode and I feel so much less alone in my journey. Once again, something that is so important for me for women to feel. This is actually one of like the main objectives that I had for this podcast. And interestingly enough, when I look at the breakdown of the episodes, how many downloads they get, the birth stories by far get the most downloads. So I guess people just like to hear others' experiences. Um, And then she wrote, as a woman's health health as a woman's health therapist, this helps me gain insight on what patients may be going through, have gone through, will go through. And once again, for clinicians, this is like another passion that I have. Sometimes we get lost in what's going on with the clinical picture, with the medical picture, and we have so many patients, and we're going from patient to patient, making sure that they have what they need, that their medical plan of care is the way it should be, that we lose sight of their experiences, their thoughts, their feelings around things. And I think it's really important for us as clinicians to take a breath, stop for a moment, and just be mindful of that. So thank you, Millie. You really nailed it with your feedback. I really, really appreciate it. For this podcast... I am going to actually not interview anyone, but I am going to tell you a story that happened last week for me. And it's not directly related to pregnancy and birth, but it's related to my personal interactions with the medical system here in the United States. And it left me feeling really disturbed and really upset. It's a well-known fact that the healthcare system in the US has a lot to be desired. I mean, healthcare systems everywhere are imperfect, but just the statistics around outcomes for people in the US are really just far below what they should be in many other developed countries. But when I come personally face to face with these realities, it really just fires me up and makes me really angry. Um, Before I actually start my story, I just wanted to remind you all about the great class Girls Growing Up that Dr. Alyssa Hellman, OBGYN, developed for girls going through puberty. And for all you bombs out there or those of you who have sisters in that age range, um, somewhere between like nine-ish and I think up to the age of 13 would be appropriate, even though I think that around the ballpark of nine is really the best time to start talking about these things with your daughter or sister or niece or student, whomever. So um, if you are 
close to somebody in that age range that is starting to undergo puberty. Her course is amazing. It's written by someone who has immense medical expertise, and she happens to also teach this information to the girls in the local school. So she's really well qualified and really experienced. And this is, in my opinion, better than a book because a book, you know, not all kids are into reading books and not all of them like to read books. And it's just harder to digest information from a book. But this is a course that you can watch and get all of the info. So I highly encourage you to go to her website, The Confident Kala. I will put the link in the episode show notes. Even for me, I'm a nurse. I'm a labor and delivery nurse. And I still felt awkward-ish talking to my daughter about this. So I can only imagine people who are like not at all in this arena. Okay, so... Let me start my story with telling you that I have a daughter who's got a range of issues with her kidneys and her entire urinary system. She has recurrent UTIs and um, as a result, unfortunately, sustained some kidney damage and um, thankfully is stable and, you know, everything's going well for her. But um, of course, we always worry about future UTIs happening because we really do not want, God forbid, to have for her to have more kidney damage. She underwent surgery uh, almost two years ago and thankfully has been UTI-free up until this past June where she had like a mild UTI and her urologist told us that it's possible for her to have mild UTIs occasionally. But the more important part is that the UTIs that have a high fever, that is usually indicative of a more severe infection that can cause inflammation in the kidneys. So, of course, every time she gets a fever, I mean, this has been going on since she was like seven months old. Every time she gets a high fever, I always freak out. And especially just knowing that, unfortunately, she already sustained kidney damage. Um, it's, it's like traumatic, um, especially before she had her surgery. There was one doctor that mismanaged her care and that didn't pick up on the kidney damage that she was having, unfortunately, and um, did not recommend surgery in a timely fashion. Like we waited too long and unfortunately she had had some UTIs in between and, you know, who knows what they did to her kidneys. But thankfully I found a great care team. And um, Like I said, things have been a lot better, but it's just all that trauma. Every time she gets a high fever, I I freak out. So last week, in the beginning of the week, she developed a cough, a cold, and a mild fever. I took her to the pediatrician right away because, again, every time she gets a fever, like one of the first things I do is rule out UTIs. And she can even just get a mild fever and have a UTI. And historically, those are really her only symptoms. Like she doesn't complain about uh, bladder pain or about having difficulty urinating. Um, You know, like once in a while, she'll have an incontinent episode. But that's really like the most of her symptoms that she'll exhibit. So... 
I went to the doctor. We ruled out the flu. We ruled out COVID. We ruled out strep. Thankfully, she was negative for all of those. And her dipstick for her urine, which is kind of like the most basic preliminary test that's done, uh, her dipstick was negative, but it can be negative with a positive culture of her urine, which takes a few days to come back because they have to grow the bacteria in the urine. So uh, the preliminary dipstick was negative and she was positive for RSV. RSV is a respiratory uh, virus and it's actually seen a huge uptick since the summer. We don't know exactly why, you know, likely COVID related in some way or another. Who knows? Who knows anything about COVID? Um, but she had RSV, which for her age range, she's five. It's not really a big deal. It, it presents like a cough, a cold and fever. Um, it, you know, before COVID times, we didn't really even test for RSV. I think it's just becoming more common to test for it because you want to rule out that it's not COVID, even though it could still be both, but just having another diagnosis kind of makes you feel a little bit more certain if she comes out negative on the COVID test. So she had a low-grade fever. The next day I was working and she was home with my husband and she had, you know, a little bit of a higher temp, but nothing earth-shattering, like 101, and it was pretty well controlled with Tylenol. And the day after that, she started like really spiking a temp like to 102, 103.6 was her highest temp. And she just didn't look good. Like her eyes were glazed over. She still had a nice cold and cough, but she was just, she just looked lethargic. And because of her kidney damage, she's not allowed to have any Motrin, no Advil, no ibuprofen. Um, so it makes it that much harder for us to get her temps down. Before I knew that she couldn't have the Motrin, I would give her Tylenol and then like two hours later, give her Motrin to get her fevers down because they were really high. So here we can only use Tylenol and I use some other alternative things, you know, cold compresses, lukewarm bath, whatever. Someone actually told me that vinegar re works really well. So hopefully she won't have a fever again, but if she does, I will try to use that and see if that works. But um, so I had a really hard time getting her temp below like 100.2. So even like one hour after her temp, after her temp spiked, she was still like, you know, if it was 103.6 and an hour later, it was only like 101. Um, and with all the cold compresses and baths and everything, and then two hours after it was like 100.7 and then slowly it would spike up again and it was like to the minute every four hours I would have to give her the highest weight-based dose of Tylenol that she could get. So I started getting anxious. We didn't have the results back for her urine culture and it sounded like we probably would not get them back until the day after that and there's another test that you can do um, that you can get back pretty quickly. It's called a microscopic urinalysis where it's a little bit more detailed than just like the little stick that they dip into the urine. And it can show you certain things like white blood cells in the urine. And if we see white blood cells in the urine, then there's a high chance that there's some infection going on. Um, so that comes back in like, you know, an hour or so. And we would be able to start her on antibiotics if we had that test and saw something like that. So I call the pediatrician. They don't do it in the pediatrician's office. You have to go to a lab and, um, 
I didn't get a call back until basically after office hours from the pediatrician. So we discussed it and we determined that it probably would be a good idea to take her to the hospital and get that test done. So it was like, I don't know, seven-ish. And we said, all right, let's go and do it. I didn't want to drag her to the ED. Like, that's the last thing I want. By the way, ER and ED are interchangeable. I'm just letting you know. ER is emergency room and ED is emergency department. I think ED is a lot more accurate, but I know that most people say ER. (laughs) Side point. So um, we got to the emergency room at like 8.20. And she had had Tylenol like an hour before that-ish. So it was really, um, you know, she was coughing. She had a really bad cold on top of everything. And the waiting room was like not full full, but there were quite a few people in the waiting room. They took us in pretty quickly to do her vitals. um, And I'm guessing that's because she had respiratory symptoms. And especially with RSV, you don't want to play around. You want to make sure that she's okay and um, that, you know, she's oxygenating well. And thankfully, her vitals were good. She was at 99.8 with her temp. And um, so that was nice to hear because that was the lowest that it had gotten all day. And she had to go to the bathroom. So we asked them for a specimen cup, took her to the bathroom. She really didn't pee a lot. There was just a little bit in there. And that actually happened before they took us in for the vitals. I'm mixing up my orders now. So I asked the nurse, you know, like, can we send the urine out? Because that's our main concern. If it's just RSV and her oxygenation levels are okay and we're not having concerns that she's, you know, has real difficulty breathing, um, can we sent out the urine. So she said, yes, we can. However, the sample's not enough. So we said, all right. We went back out to the waiting room and had her drink a lot. And finally, when she had to pee again, we took another specimen cup. And um, it wasn't actually that much longer after we left the, the first initial triage area with her vitals. And she gave us a nice big sample of urine. I took the urine to the front of, you know, so we were in the waiting room again, and I took the urine to the front where they have, like, the desk and gave it to the person sitting at the front. So she's like, okay, thanks. And I said to her, like, are you going to label it, you know? She's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. You can just leave it here. And I know that a big boo-boo is to take a specimen and not label it right away. Like, I don't even take the labs that I draw for my patient out of the patient's room, like I don't put them in my pocket. Even if I just have one patient, I don't take them out. I go and get the labels if I don't have them already. And I bring them back to the room, sign them and tape them onto the specimens because that's like a huge boo-boo. And unfortunately, that is a medical error that happens uh, frequently. And it could be deadly if we don't pick up on Uh, you know, illnesses that someone has, and it could be deadly to pick up on an illness or condition that someone has that they don't have and treat them for it. So I stood there and I made sure that they put the label on her specimen cup. Um, Now, I was under the impression that the urine was going to go out and we would you know, hear back for the results. So I said, okay, we're waiting in the waiting room. And that's really all we're waiting on at this point. And when we get called in, we'll know the results 
And if she needs antibiotics, she will get the antibiotics and we'll feel better that we ruled it out. And vice versa, if she's negative, then we'll just feel better that this is a second sample and she was still negative. Now, I just want to preface and let you know that I'm in healthcare myself. I'm a nurse. And sometimes someone who's in healthcare, like they just know how to manipulate the system. So they're really not pleasant patients to have. And then it can go the other way, which I fall into that category of, I feel really bad bothering the staff. I know how busy it is. I know all of the limitations that you have in the hospital, especially in an emergency department. You can't control who comes in when. You can't make appointments. So, you know, you can have a whole room full of people, but if, God forbid, someone comes with respiratory distress, with their baby having respiratory distress or some cardiac event and, you know, God forbid they need to be resuscitated or a car accident and they're hemorrhaging, obviously those are going to go ahead of all the people waiting in line. So I get it. And then the people waiting in line will get, you know, annoyed because they want care. And why are these people going ahead of them? And they don't necessarily know why these people are triaged ahead of them. So it can get annoying. But as someone who works in labor and delivery, where we have a similar system where patients will come in to triage, we don't have control over when they decide to come in. Um, You know, we have to triage them and we have to prioritize care. So I get all of that. And I just I don't like to bother the staff. I feel bad. I want to be that nice, good patient. I know that I have kind of an assertive side to me, but I'm, I'm not coming from that place. Like, I'm very nice. I really don't bother them. Okay, fine. So we're sitting out in the waiting room, and an hour passes, and two hours pass, and by, like, hour number three and a half-ish, four, uh, so this is, like, midnight already, I come back up. I, I came... I came up to the front once or twice and just like said like, you know, can we have an update? Can we have an ETA? I wasn't saying like, hey, I've been waiting here for three hours. Can you please take us in already? I was just like, you know, like, can I have an update? So they said, oh, we'll take you in soon. There's three patients ahead, blah, blah, blah. Fine. We're coming up to four hours. And remember, my daughter had had Tylenol like five hours ago already. So of course she spiked the temp. I didn't know how high it was because I wasn't expecting that we'd be in the waiting room so long. I didn't have a thermometer on me and I didn't have any Tylenol on me. Had I known, I would have brought the Tylenol too. So, you know, the poor thing, she's starting to burn up. I can feel it. And I went up to the front and I said to the front desk, like, what's going on? Did we get back our results from the urine? I I just want to know and my daughter is starting to flame up with the fever again she just needs Tylenol like just can you please just give her Tylenol and then we'll we'll wait if we need to but now she's starting to get sicker because of our wait in the waiting room so I realize that the person sitting up front is just um, you know like a clerk so they're not really extremely medically knowledgeable and they said don't worry ma'am you'll be seen soon I said, did the urine get sent out? And she said, nope. I said, where is it? Was it refrigerated? And she said, oh, it's it's sitting right here. Like she had a bit of a guilty look on her face. I said, so you're telling me that my daughter's urine sample that I gave you four hours ago is sitting out at room temperature behind you and was not sent out? I said, can you just have a doctor put in an order for it to be sent out so that by the time we get in, we can 
you know, for the sake of efficiency, we can be efficient. You can just let me know and we'll decide what to do then. And not only that, but urine is not good at room temperature for longer than an hour. After that, it starts getting ruined, contaminated. It's not going to be an accurate sample. So at the very least, if they couldn't send it out for whatever reason, not to refrigerate it is ridiculous. Um, And the clerk told me, she said, listen, there are three different pods in the emergency room and we don't know what pod your daughter's going to be in yet. And depending on whichever pod your daughter's in, she's going to have a different doctor. So we need to find out first who her doctor is before they can order the lab, which again, to me is absolutely ridiculous. I said, just put her in a pod, whichever doctor is in charge of that pod, have them order the labs, and then you can transfer her to a different pod. I mean, patients transfer all the time rooms. So again, I don't work in the emergency department. I know that. And I know that there are barriers and that there's lots of red tape. But this is so ridiculous. There was a huge line of people in the waiting room. And Like, for the sake of efficiency, just send out the urine. So by the time we get in, you can have us in and out so much faster. So the clerk was just like, ma'am, the healthcare providers, you know, the nurses know how long is okay for the urine. Don't worry. Like, it just appalls me to think, would they have sent out that urine had I not, you know, said anything? At that point, I was starting to really get annoyed because this is unacceptable to have urine out. At least put it in the fridge if you know that it's not going to be processed right away. Um, So at this point, I was really starting to get annoyed. And this is so not me. But I said, can I please speak with your manager? So they sent the charge nurse out. And of course, I I don't want to be that bad patient. I don't want to be that annoying unpleasant patient and I was the kindest but I said to the nurse I said you know I understand that you have a long wait and there are people that are a higher priority or ahead of me but my daughter's flaming up with fever she just needs Tylenol and also is there any way that like I said to her I said the urine's not good anymore so we need to give another sample we need to get another sample by this time it was way past midnight she was sleeping um I said, you know, can we just send it out so that at least we'll know what happens by the time we get in? So she was very kind. She was very nice. And she said, OK, ma'am, don't worry. You'll be seen soon. Huh. Suddenly I'll be seen soon. Like, it makes me wonder if I didn't make a stink and if I didn't say all of this, would I have been seen soon? I don't know. I, I don't know. Right after me, or maybe it was right ahead of me, it was such a heartbreaking thing to see. There were two parents that came up to the front and they had a stroller, you know, like with a car seat. I didn't see how old the baby was, but the mother says to the clerk at the front, she said, you know, we've been waiting here for over four hours. What's going on? And of course, the clerk was like, ma'am, there's people ahead of you. She started explaining to her, like, you know, I don't know what she started explaining to her. It doesn't really help when you're in a desperate situation. And the mother like started really getting emotional and you know I don't blame her like maybe she could have come off as a little bit aggressive but this is a long time and turns out she starts crying and she said I have a three-month-old baby the doctor sent me to the emergency room because she might have you know some intestinal problem that she may need surgery for that may be a big emergency. I haven't fed my three-month-old baby since 5 p.m. 
And this was after midnight. So we're talking over seven hours, a three-month-old that should be eating every three hours has not been fed because of the possibility that this baby might need surgery. And she just, again, was like given some platitude of, it's okay, ma'am, don't worry, she'll be seen, blah, blah, blah. And at this point, like, there's no one to talk to. And I can I can feel her desperation because I myself am starting to feel desperate. Like, what is going on? This is not right. We're waiting on stupid urine to get sent out. I need Tylenol for my child because now she's getting a fever that's going to take a long time to get down if I don't medicate her right away. And there's no one to call. There's no one to ask anything to. You know, I'm a big patient relations person, meaning to say every hospital has a patient relations department. So if you're having problems, you can reach out to the patient relations department. There's like a liaison that will, and guys, this is a pro tip. There's like a liaison that will reach out to you and just help you resolve things if they can. Um, But in this particular hospital, when I found the number, they were like, our business hours are between 8 and 4.30. Your call is important to us, so please leave a voicemail and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. I was like, yeah, okay, I hope I'm not going to be in the hospital until 8 in the morning. So, I, where was I? Oh, yeah, I, I just can hear the desperation in her voice. And I'm starting to get really upset because it's been over, you know, it, it's been over five hours since my daughter has had her Tylenol. Finally, finally, someone came out and called our name. We went in and they gave us a room. So that's a good start. I feel like I feel like they make this process so that even if you're waiting, at least you feel like you went on to the next phase and now finally you have a room. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone's going to see you too soon, but you know, now you have a change of scenery. <laughs> now you're in a room. Um, and maybe it like gives you this feeling of, okay, I'm finally going to be seen, which I knew deep down inside was not going to be the case. And I was right. So um, the nurse, you know, I told the nurse, I said, my daughter needs to pee again and I need to give a urine sample can you please give me a specimen cup so the nurse goes back and brings me back a different kind of specimen cup with like an orange top whereas the other two specimen cups are actually the same ones that I work with in the hospital they have a blue top and they have like a little needle at the top you can't actually see it it's like deeper down but then you take vials you poke it onto the needle it's called a vacutainer and the urine um fills up those little vials and those get sent out. Uh, And those vials can't be filled up if, you know, from another specimen cup. They can only be filled up from that special blue top. So the nurse looks at me strangely. He He gave me like baby wipes and this orange top specimen cup. And I said to him, I said, um, could we have the other specimen cup? He says, which one? So I, I don't know, was he like high on something? Was it his first day? Where If it was, then he should have been supervised by another nurse. I said, the blue top, you know, the one with the vacutainer? And he said, oh, I said, we need a clean catch, not like a dirty catch from that orange top. I don't know. So it, he went back to look for the blue top finally, and it, it took forever, seriously. I, I felt like he was maybe going to the distribution factory <laughs> to get it. Um, and finally he comes back with the blue specimen cup and said, oh yeah, okay, so if you're getting a clean catch, don't use the wipes, use this, these special cleaning, cleansing wipes. My gosh, thank God 
finally we were starting to get somewhere and I was hoping that, okay, hopefully that means we'll be seen within the next hour so we can send off the urine. Um, so I went and got her a, a urine, you know, got her urine into the cup. And I'm just hoping that this is a good urine sample because sometimes the sample can be contaminated, especially with little kids. It's a little bit harder to get a clean sample. And if the sample is contaminated, then it just makes everything that much more confusing and um, you're kind of not sure. And just thinking like, what if the other two specimens were a clean catch and not contaminated? And like, what if this one comes out contaminated? But anyway, I got the urine. And of course, also just, I know which specimen cup my daughter should have had just because I'm a nurse and I work with these specimen cups and I understand how these are processed to the lab. Like if I was a regular parent, I wouldn't have known that. And then what? They would have said that I need a fourth specimen for her. It was, we would wait even longer, but fine. So we're waiting in the room for a little bit of time. I don't know how long. And finally, someone comes in like for vitals. Actually, before someone comes in for vitals, finally a resident comes in. And, you know, she says, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Um, and I look at her badge and I see that she's a resident, which I'm I'm fine with. I work with residents and I think that they're awesome and great. And I think that they can really actually improve your medical care. They're just like another set of eyes on you, another brain. They ask questions and the doctors that are the attendings have to make sure that they're teaching everything correctly to them. So I'm a fan of residents. I truly am. But I am upset when they come in and they say they're Dr. So-and-so without saying, you know, that they're a resident. Like where I work with residents, the residents say, hi, my name is Dr. So-and-so. I'm one of the residents. I'm going to be involved in your care, blah, blah, blah. Like just be transparent and say that you're a resident. I knew to look at her badge and on the badge it says resident underneath her, you know, ID badge. But I was just annoyed again. Like it just, and I, she seemed like a first year resident, no sense of urgency, just sitting there chatting with us. And like the first thing I said to her, I said, she's flaring up with a fever. It's really hard to control her temps. She has a history of, of uh, chronic kidney disease. She cannot have Motrin. It's going to take a really long time. Her lowest temp at home today was 100.2 and in your hospital, 99.8. And this is four hours later. I said, she really needs Tylenol, please. She's like, sure, sure, we can get that for you. And then she goes on interviewing us. And again, I'm like that nice patient. I don't want to be that unpleasant, annoying patient. So... You know, I, I'm like quickly answering all her questions. And then she did listen to my daughter's lungs, which I was happy about because I just wanted to make sure she didn't have any pneumonia-ish stuff going on too. So, you know, I let her do her thing. And then like after she did the full exam, she's like, oh, you're not feeling well, sweetie. Oh, and I'm like, like, could we hurry up? There's a waiting room full of people out there. We've already been in this room for like 30 or 45 minutes waiting to see someone. Like, there was no sense of urgency. It, it just bothered me so much because at least where I work in the places where I work, when we have a busy floor, I really, we all really try to prioritize care, like do whatever we can for each patient so that we can get them in and out, so that we can actually focus our attention to the patients that really need the medical care um, and the patients that are okay, get them out. 
And there was no sense of urgency here. She's like standing there next to my daughter and my daughter's adorable, granted. But like, don't sit there and, and you know, be all friendly to her. Just go get her Tylenol. Put the order in for Tylenol. And while she's interviewing us, um, you know, I already had taken her temperature with the temporal thermometer that was there. Um, and I know already she's got like a nice temp that's creeping up to 102. So the, you know, the resident... I don't even remember if she took the temp, but in the middle of the whole conversation, there was a patient care technician that's not a nurse, you know, but they can take vitals like a nurse's aide. And when she opened the door to the triage room, she said, oh, you, I'll come back to the resident. They said, no, 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 you can do it at the same time. Like, we can do all of this at the same time. She can be taking vitals while the resident interviews us and asks us all the questions again. This is efficiency, and there's no efficiency. And I said to her, I'm like, no, no, please come in. Please take her vitals now. She said, no, no, you sure? Like, I can take that? I said, please, just take her vitals now. Like, let's get all of this done with. So, like, do whatever you need to do. I didn't say it like that to them, but I was obviously thinking that. I was, like, all smiling and nice to them. But I was thinking, just do whatever you need to do so that my poor daughter, who's flaming up right now, can get her damn Tylenol. Fine. Uh, the resident finishes her interview, and my daughter indeed has fever, as confirmed by the hospital staff. <sighs> and um, finally, the nurse comes in, and you know we have to say the whole entire thing to the nurse again. And then the attending comes in, and we have to say the whole thing to the attending again. And I'm just like, "Come on, please give her her Tylenol." Finally, at 1:30 a.m., around ish, she gets her Tylenol, and. Finally, the orders were put in for her urine to be sent out. And the turnaround time, as it states on the whiteboard in the room, it says that for urine, the turnaround time is somewhere between 60 to 90 minutes. So I knew we were still going to be in that room for like another 60 to 90 minutes until we were able to determine whether or not she had a UTI. Okay. Now, again, I just need to like reiterate, there's a waiting room full of people like, there are people who are parents of a three-month-old who hasn't eaten since 5 p.m. and may need surgery, and they're just taking their merry time with no efficiency of care. Like, I, I don't understand. Was it communicated to them that there's a waiting room full of people? Like, did, I, I just, I was getting so frustrated because coming from my perspective as a healthcare worker in a hospital... There was so little efficiency, and I, I don't understand if they didn't care or if there's some break in communication or if this is just how they did things and they didn't think about it differently, but I was so, so frustrated, and I was so upset that, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have had to wait so long if things would have been more efficient. Like, they could have just sent off her urine, and by then we could have come in, they could have quickly given her her Tylenol after, as soon as they saw that she had fever, and then done the full interview, and, and you know, told us yes or no, whether she has or she does not have a UTI, and gotten us out of there. But there was no sense of urgency. I know hospital staff works 24-7, so... For the people that work night shift, maybe it's not as relevant to them and maybe this is not at the forefront of their mind. Okay, granted. But you do want to also take into consideration that this is a young child and that it's 1.30 a.m. We've been there since 8.20 p.m. And like, you know, there's two parents where one has to go to work the next day and like just let's be efficient and get them out just with that consideration in mind too. Of course, that's not the main uh, factor that's driving their decisions. But like, let's just 
keep all of that in mind. Fine. So they sent off the urine and then like my husband fell asleep on her bed. And of course she was bouncing all around town like total energizer bunny. And I was trying to entertain her. And I was exhausted and it was just endless. We were just sitting there and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, I'm sorry, I have to backtrack and say that, yes, finally, she did get her Tylenol at 1.30. I don't know if I said that. But um, so and she was feeling better. So it was probably like 2.30 ish. And then it was like three. And I don't want to be that patient. But I had to like poke at my head and say, hey, like, is anything going on yet? And I felt really bad. But at the same time, I just, I was getting so frustrated. I was kind of like, okay, no more nice patient. Like, let me be assertive. I can speak nicely, but I'm advocating right now for myself and for my child. And I, I want to know what's going on. And they're like, okay, we'll get the nurse. Like the nurse wasn't out there. Don't worry, we'll get the nurse, blah, 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 blah. Fine. Um, nobody's coming. And I'm coming from like a compassionate place. I know that when it's crazy busy, I can't give all of my patients the timely care that they deserve. I have to prioritize the safety of certain patients over others. And I feel so horrible when that happens, but it's beyond my control. So I get it. Like I'm just giving the nurse the benefit of the doubt. Like she's probably very, very busy, given that there's such a busy waiting room out there as well. And who knows, like maybe there's a code going on in another room. So I get it. I get it. You know, I'm waiting nicely and patiently. But I start to feel like I have to somehow get creative and get their attention and let them know that I'm actually, we're actually still in a room and just, you know, kind of wondering what's going on. So I tell my daughter, I I open the triage. There's like, the, there are like these little booths with the door. So I open the, the booth and I tell my daughter to like stand right at the edge. And I told her to sing a song really loud because at this point I have to get creative. And I just I want the hospital not to want us to be there. <laughs> I, they seem to be like, OK, with us, you know, inhabiting that room. But I just wanted them really not to want us to be there and to just like do whatever they can to get us out. Um, and then she's like, no, mommy, that's weird. <laughs> And then when I asked her what weird means, she says, like, that's awkward. All right, we're talking about a five-year-old here, and this is what she's saying. So, um, but anyway, she just, she did stand at, like, the threshold just watching everyone, and I was hoping that maybe they would be reminded of us. Um, I don't know how well that worked, but I think it was probably around 3.30-ish, maybe a little earlier than that, that, um, no, it was, like, probably around 330 And that resident came in and told us that uh, there were indeed white blood cells in her urine, which, again, is a preliminary indication that she uh, may have a UTI. It's a strong indicator of that. So, of course, it was really, really, really disappointing to me and alarming, but it did reinforce my decision to take her and get her checked out and get her treated as soon as possible. So now we're coming up to, you know, it's 3.30. We've been in the hospital for like, what, I don't know, eight hours, seven hours, um, just to finally be told that she has white blood cells in her urine and that she has a UTI and that she needs antibiotic treatment. 
So then the resident goes on to explain to us, you know, that she's going to get an antibiotic. And I don't know if this is so funny or not, but because my daughter has been given so many antibiotics throughout her little short life for all these UTIs, she already knows which antibiotics taste good, which don't. Like she knows the names. So she's like, yes, I want Bactrim. That tastes good. (laughs) Um, So, you know, they're like, okay, we're going to send the prescription to this and this pharmacy. And I said to them, I said, we're coming up to almost... 4 a.m. Okay, it's 3.30. And just thinking about how now, after being in the emergency room, we have to now go find a 24-hour pharmacy, hope that they have the antibiotic, and wait for them to prepare it and get it, and then to give it to her. So this is going to be like another lag time of two hours for her to get the antibiotic that she needed after we were in the emergency room for seven hours. So I asked the resident, I said, can you please give her her first dose here? So she's like hemming and hawing. She probably, I don't know if anyone's ever asked her to do that. And now now I'm taking advantage of my medical knowledge because like this is totally a reasonable thing to do. And, you know, yes, maybe in many circumstances they would just send it out. And this has happened to me in the past also where I just let it go and said, okay, fine, like, uh, I'll just go and pick it up and blah, blah, blah. But here I felt like if she gets the antibiotic right now, we can go home, we can maybe get a few hours of sleep. And then in the morning, I can give her her second dose, you know, get it from the pharmacy and give her her second dose. So I asked the resident and she was hemming and hawing. And she's like, well, you know, we have to wait for a pharmacy to you know, prepare it. It's going to take time. And I'm thinking to myself, we took so much time already in this room to send out a urine sample. Okay. And to give my child Tylenol, like we took enough time. Obviously, if that wasn't urgent enough and, you know, I'm not saying this to her, by the way, guys, this is a conversation going on in my head. But if we were able to take so much time to do all of this, then that's okay. I'll wait the little bit amount of time to get her the medication. Um, and I, I said something like that to the resident in a nicer tone. And I said to the resident, I said, please, it's going to be really, you know, a hardship for us to have to go to ph- find a pharmacy that's 24 hours, make sure that they have the medication, go pick it up and give it to her. I said, we have other children at home. We have other things going on at home. So they agreed. Um, at this point, I probably would not have left the emergency department had they not agreed. And, um, you know, the nurse came in, said she's going to get it for us as soon as it comes. And I'm just thinking in my head, like, oh, my gosh, oh, who knows how much longer it's going to take for the dumb antibiotics to come. But thankfully, we didn't have to wait longer than like 30 minutes. And she got the antibiotics and we left the emergency department. And I got home at like 5 a.m., My daughter's been sick for quite a while, and almost every single time, I would say like a good 75% of the time, something happens like this, and in different institutions. Why is this a more frequent experience than not? And I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm a healthcare provider. I come from this world. I know how things work, and maybe because I know how things work, I'm especially angry because I know how much more efficient things can be. And at the same time, it just scares me to think like there's so many parents that are not as medically literate as I am and that don't know how to advocate for their child as well as I am blessed to be able to. I can see why the outcomes are so terrible in our country. 
am I romanticizing and glorifying the healthcare systems in other countries? Absolutely not. I know that there are problems in the other countries of a different nature or similar nature. I know it. I, I This is not to say that every other country has a great and the U.S. has a terrible. But the medical system is privatized in the U.S. And supposedly, one of the rationales for the benefits of that is that the care is better. The medical care is better. There's, I guess, more incentive to do better. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know. You know, I, I think that maybe we practice from a place of liability where we are afraid of being sued. So sometimes that, that dictates our practice, which is not necessarily in the best interest of the patient. I don't know what the solution is. I definitely am going to send feedback to the hospital in the form of an email. Maybe I should just send them a link to this episode <laughs> so that they can really hear my thoughts. Maybe I will. It's actually a good idea. I feel like these are small improvements that are not difficult to implement. Every hospital or many hospitals, and I imagine this one, which is a learning hospital, has clinical practice committees where they investigate what the practice is like, what the workflows are like, and they can change things in order to make it more safe, in order to make it more efficient. Like there were so many holes here. It just makes me so upset to think that what if a child is waiting in that waiting room for four hours and God forbid they didn't get timely care and something happens because of that. Just thinking about my daughter's fever flaring up. Thankfully, it wasn't that high and thankfully we got it down in about two hours. But what if, God forbid, it was a baby that had that and the baby would start to get a febrile seizure and seize? It just, I left feeling so upset and so angry that the healthcare system is so messed up. And I don't know, maybe when I give care to a patient, maybe my unit comes off as being like this as well. I like to think not. I like to think that I try to, and and not just me, but the team that I work with, really, they try to be attentive to the patient and to provide timely care. I don't know, maybe it's a labor and delivery thing where we're more efficient and we provide better care. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. There's no perfect answers. That much I know. But there's definitely, definitely change that is warranted here. My heart goes out to those of you who are learning all that you can so that you can be a better advocate for yourself. And it really just saddens me that the attitude here is very overwhelmingly that you have to go into the hospital ready to fight to have your needs met. And it's just upsetting. I, I wish I could leave you off on a positive note here, but every single time this happens, I always tell myself that I need to listen to my intuition better. I need to advocate and be more assertive and just stop with the people-pleasing attitude of wanting to be that good patient. Obviously, I never want to be mean. I, I know what it's like coming from that place. I know what it's like. And I'm not blaming the healthcare providers in this story. I think the majority of them are really well-intentioned. I, I believe that the that the majority of nurses, doctors, mid-level providers, I think that the majority of them really go in to their job with good intentions, with goodwill, and they want to truly care for their patients in the best way that they can. 
But somewhere along the way, they get burned out. Like the workload increases, the charting increases, the the tasks that they have to do increases, the working conditions worsen, and it causes burnout. It causes burnout, it causes safety problems, it causes delay of care, and there's just so much red tape to navigate. There are policies, there are procedures, and they're all set in place for the safety of the patient. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes they are more harmful to the patient than not, and We just need to be able to use our judgment better and not practice from that fear-based perspective and know when it's relevant um, and when it warrants to kind of override the policy. Like in the case of my daughter being not being able to send off her urine because we're not sure which pod she's going to be in. So just put her in a pod and then transfer her if you need to. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being unreasonable. Maybe this is not something that's done. Maybe someone who works in the ED is laughing at me right now, but I truly think that we really need an overhaul here. And when I briefly mentioned this saga on my Instagram, I got many amazing messages, um, you know, really caring, well wishes uh, messages. So thank you for that. And one person wrote to me, she wrote, I'm wishing your daughter a speedy recovery. And I'm also wishing the healthcare system a speedy recovery. Um, and this is someone who is a, uh, a nurse herself. So, you know, we, we see it and I see it from both sides. Like I said, 50 million times already here in this podcast, it really, really frustrates me. I give all of you blessings that you should all stay healthy and well that your children, if you have, should stay healthy and well, and um, that you receive safe care in the hospital, it's always something to pray for, really. Like, you can go to the best hospital in the world and stuff just happens. You know, you end up having to wait four hours in a waiting room because there are so many people ahead of you and no one can find that out. So no matter how good of a care team you choose ahead of time, if you're giving birth or in any other area of medicine, I think at the end of the day, it's really all up to God. And it really highlights the importance of of prayer, of davening. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Yolwedit Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience. 